Thanks, Brian. We do want to continue to keep John and Danielle in our prayers as they're traveling back. I'm so glad that they had this opportunity to get away. Well, I wrote at the top of my sermon here, you are nothing without Christ. You are preaching to yourself. And today's message is going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be a tough teaching. But I want you to know that I've, what I've wrestled through, I'm going to preach to a standard that I am not fully living right now. And that's difficult. And I've wrestled with that this week. I think that's, that's what the Bible does. And so my prayer for you this morning is that you would wrestle with it. But I know that it's not going to be me. It's going to be Christ. It's going to be through the Holy Spirit. And so I, I, my prayer is that he would speak through me today. So today we're going to talk about a wedding feast. And in the ancient world, Jewish wedding traditions looked far different than what wedding traditions look like today. What we know as the wedding engagement was a far more elaborate process in Jesus' time. So what would take place is that the groom would leave his father's home, and he would travel to the bride's father's house, and he would bring with him a down payment and, and a gift. And that gift might be money or property or services, and there would be a negotiation that would take place, and there would be a marriage contract that would be drafted. But the ceremony and the wedding feast would not take place for sometimes up to a year or longer. And this is because the groom would return to his father's house and he would begin building a bridal chamber, a living quarters for him and his wife. So you can imagine that's going to take some time. So there's this gap of time between when the contract is drafted And when the groom would return for his bride, and and, and upon this return, this was was an unknown time. If you remember the, the, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, they're waiting for the groom for this unknown time. And he would announce it sometimes with a trumpet blast, and he would come out, and he would he would go to uh the the bride's father's house, and he would um then pick her up, and then they would, uh, I'm, this is a more concise version, there's more details here, but essentially the, the ceremony and the feast would follow. And so it was the duty of the wife during that time, during that, up to that year in between, it was the duty of the wife to keep herself pure and holy, because she's considered married. And you can see the parallels, there's so many parallels here, of what Christ has done as he left the Father's house, came here gave us the down payment, return to his father's house. He told his disciples, what did he tell them? I'm preparing a place for you. There are many rooms in my father's house, he said. And it's our job as his bride, as the church, to keep ourselves pure until he returns, until the second coming, right? So there's so many beautiful analogies um, through the Jewish wedding and, and engagement process. But there's more. 
the wedding banquet ex- itself was one of the most joyous occasions in Jewish life. And this could sometimes, this celebration could sometimes last up to a week. Now, if you think weddings are boring now, <laughs> right? Imagine celebrating for an entire week, okay? So knowing all that background, it's easy to see why it was common in the ancient world for not one invitation to go out announcing the wedding, but two. The initial invitation would go out announcing the marriage, and then a second invitation would need to go out when the feast was prepared a year later or more, whenever that time was. When the feast was ready, another invitation would go out. And so in the parable we're studying today, Jesus describes a king whose son was engaged to be married, and and they've gone through the engagement process, and now it's time. The wedding feast is ready. The banquet is prepared. He's sending out the invitation. He's asking those guests to come fill the banquet, come fill the the wedding feast. And so we're going to pull that, those first, we're going to turn to Matthew 22, and we're going to pull those first four verses up. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. I wanted to give those of you who were going to follow in your Bibles a little bit more time than that, so I apologize. But we're going to sit in Matthew 22. We're going to go through a couple verses at a time, so you can just stay right there. So in that time, the lower a person's status, social status, the greater expectation there was for a timely response to an invitation. And according to scholars, it was your social obligation to attend a wedding that you were invited to. Ignoring a wedding invitation in the ancient world, it carried a heavy penalty, especially if it came from the king. And so by refusing the invitation, a guest was at best embarrassing the host and at the very worst insulting him. The initial rejection then, as Jesus is telling this parable, this initial rejection would have been shocking to the hearers. Unbelievable that these people are choosing to reject the invitation. And this is where in the parable, as we study these next several verses, this is where we find an unusual third invitation that goes out. So let's go ahead and pull up those next verses 5 through 10. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent troops, sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. All those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they could find, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now I want us to consider for a moment the reaction of those who were invited. 
What does it say here? Someone about their business, literally, decided their occupations were more important. Some of the servants who go out uh, with this second invitation, they find themselves beaten or killed. So they respond with violence, hostility. It's, pre- it's a preposterous reaction. And so because of this, naturally, I mean, we're not surprised when we read that the king retaliated, right? He's the king. He brought justice on those who responded this way. And it reminds me of when Jesus tells Peter, hey, look, those who live by the sword are going to die by the sword. Besides going against the social order, which we talked about earlier, this was an act of treason against the king, killing his servants. I want us to notice here that it's not that these people were unable to come to the wedding feast. They had a lot of excuses. It was that they intentionally chose not to. And not only that, some of them intentionally chose murder and violence over an invitation. Think about that. It is an invitation to come enjoy and celebrate at a feast and they were so offended that they killed the servant. Now, why would that offend them, right? We're going to get into that in a second. So with the first and the second invitation so dramatically rejected, the king now has the invitation, go out to everyone. Go out to the strangers. Go out to anyone and everyone. The text says good and bad alike. Doesn't matter who they are, just go, invite anybody. And this welcoming, I'm sure you can draw the parallels, this welcoming of the good and bad alike, it echoes Jesus' mission to save and rescue sinners, not the righteous, not the religious. And this is where we can begin to talk about what those metaphors mean. So the king here is represented as God the Son, Christ, the messengers, the prophets of God. And the invitation to come to the king's wedding feast, it initially, when we read through Scripture, it initially went out to who? It went out to the Jewish nation, the Jewish people. And generally speaking, I say generally speaking because there were some who accepted the invitation, but generally speaking, they rejected God the Father, right? Throughout the Old Testament. They rejected the Son when they arrested him. And they crucified him. God sent other witnesses. God sent the church. God sent the apostles. And as the Holy Spirit came upon the church and came upon these believers, they were empowered to preach the life-changing message. And there were miracles performed. And there was living proof right before their eyes of God working in the church. And what we read is during the first seven chapters of Acts, this all unfolds, this parable all unfolds within the life of the disciples. Because the first seven chapters of Acts, that invitation, it's still going. It's still going to the Jewish people. Despite what they did to the prophets, despite what they did to God's servants and God's son, it's still going out to them. But the religious elite, specifically, they chose to reject the Holy Spirit. And this culminates at the stoning of Stephen in Acts 7. 
This is literally what Stephen tells them. You always reject the Holy Spirit. I mean, Stephen, go, filled with the Holy Spirit, Stephen goes through this incredible speech where he declares the bankruptcy of the Jewish religious system. He recounts their rebellion against God throughout their history. He accuses them of betraying and murdering God's son and God's prophets. And I wish that I, we had more time to go into it. There's a, this amazing moment where Stephen looks up and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God as he's stoned. It's one of only two places, I believe, in Scripture where, you, where Jesus is described as standing at the right hand of, of, of God the Father instead of seated or next to. And this is the pivotal moment of this parable where we see the third invitation being blasted out from heaven. The early church is scattered. They suffer martyrdom. And the good news of the gospel, it goes out first to the Samaritans in Acts 8. And then we read it goes out to the Gentiles in Acts 10. All tribes, all nations, all tongues, good and bad alike, go out and invite anyone and everyone to come to the feast. This is the third invitation being blasted out. It's a fascinating Real-life illustration of how this parable comes to life as God the Father invites all to his banquet feast. But here's the thing. You know, we could... That, that's, a, that's a nice, tidy wrap-up right there, but that's not even the most controversial part of the parable. We're going to get to that here in a minute. There's this man who stumbles into the wedding feast so with the king's invitations finally being received, the banquet hall is now filled with guests. There's another detail here that Matthew adds. And so we're going to go ahead and pull up those next four, 11 through 14. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Man, now this can be a little confusing, right? Because it seems on the surface, this is really a harsh response. Like, he, the king is really mad at this guy. Like, what, what's going on here? You know, with the king. And I think that for me, when I read the Bible, these are the, these are the moments that I really enjoy because you have to dig deeper, right? You have to dig deeper into this to figure out what's really going on here. And so it's always helpful to dig into the symbolism, to get, dig into the cross-references. Where else does Scripture talk about wedding garments, this is the question I found myself asking. Well, Revelation 19 speaks of the marriage supper of the Lamb, where the bride, true believers, are invited to dine alongside the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And there's an interesting detail that we can discover here. So let's go ahead and pull up that Revelation 19, verses 6 through 8. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters. 
and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, but His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. There it is. The linens. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now we know that the fine linen is not the righteous deeds of us because what are our garments are like filthy rags. The garments are the works of Christ which he enabled the saints to perform through the Holy Spirit, right? Granted to her. This is an interesting phrase. Revelation 19, 8. It was granted to her, her talking about the bride, talking about us, the church. It was granted to her. Okay? These could be similar to the white shining garments which were required at a wedding feast. So when the king arrives and he's looking over the guests, the, he finds this one man. He's, he's not dressed in the right garments. And a lot of scholars have uh, come to the conclusion, debated maybe, that the proper wedding garments would have been provided by the king upon entry. Now that's not a far-fetched idea considering what we just read in Revelation 19 where it says granted to. They are granted to. And we know that... It, if we go Revelation 19, if it's the good deeds, we know that though that has to be granted to us. We can't do that in our own strength. And so it's interesting here that the, the garments may have been provided by the king. As we go through the sweep of Scripture, we find this to be a common theme. When Adam and Eve sin, all the way back in Genesis, very beginning, when they sin, it's God that provides the, the garments. It's God who provides the animal skin as a covering to their nakedness, right? Isaiah writes in Isaiah 64, 6 that, and I quoted this earlier, our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We need new clothing to be truly righteous. And then we read this in uh, Zechariah 3. This is another familiar passage. Then he showed me Joshua. This is Zechariah 3, right at the beginning, verses 1 through 5. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Okay, so what's the theme that we can gather here? The garments are provided by God. This man, he can look around when he gets into the wedding banquet feast, he can look around and see that he's not dressed the same. He can see that. Everybody else is wearing clothes, wedding garments. He's not. He sticks out like a sore thumb. And the thing is, he doesn't really seem to care. The king asks him a question. The king is gentle with him. He calls him friend. Friend, 
how did you get in here without the right garments? And what does he say? He doesn't say anything. He doesn't try and defend himself. He doesn't ask any questions. He doesn't bow down at the king's feet and repent. Oh, I'm so sorry. I don't know how I, you know, it's none of that. He doesn't say anything to him. And this is just another mark of disrespect against a king who has already been thoroughly insulted, right, by the rejection of the invitations. Ironically, this man responds to the king in the same way that those who rejected the invitations responded. He is defiant and he's unconcerned with the king's will. And this is the first fill in the blank of your bulletin. What we discover in this parable is that a lack of submission to Jesus can be just as harmful as unbelief. This man is cast out by his response and his behavior. He's demonstrated he's not part of God's elected community of believers because he believes that his clothing is good enough. I don't need to change my clothes. I can come into this feast with my own clothes on, with my own garments. He's, he's, in, he's indifferent to the will of the king. I want to wear my clothes, so I'm going to do it. So what we find out here is that some, like the religious elite, like many people in our world today, they reject the king's invitation outright. And what's interesting is that when you look at this parable of what kind of responses were made, it is so familiar to what we see in the world today, right? You see excuses, you see indifference, and you see aggression, violence, right? The gospel makes people who, who, who reject it, people who are against it, they get mad. <laughs> they get violent. They get angry, some people. So other people, they're just indifferent to it. Other people, they're just, nah, I'd rather do, run my business. Nah, I've got other things to do. But what we also find in this parable is that there are some like the man with improper clothing who accept the invitation. He accepted the invitation. He showed up. But what did he not do? He was unwilling to accept the wardrobe change that God, the Father, the King required in order for him to be there. And this is the tragedy, the reality. Both of those types of responses end up in the same place. They're on the outside looking in. It's implied here by the parable that he's separated from the king. Throw him into the outer darkness. Strong language, right? It's implied that this guy who accepted the invitation but did not accept the will of the king ends up in the same place as the people who just outright rejected them. But you know, this parable is not just about unbelievers, this is very much a parable for believers found myself asking, how many in the church today have accepted Jesus, prayed a prayer, 
attended church, maybe even gotten baptized, yet they, they look like the same person in a lot of ways. The sad reality is that there are many inside and outside the church who, man, they want to add Jesus to their life. They want to be there at the wedding feast. But they have no interest in allowing God to change their wardrobe. Now, I'm good. I mean, I would say that this is probably the biggest knock on Christianity, right? Too many hypocrites in the church. This is what we hear. You want to come to church? No, no, no. Too many hypocrites in the church. I don't want to be there with all those hypocrites. And so I found myself asking, okay, here's what the parable is teaching. Let's, let's see, is it, rele- is it accurate? Is it relevant for today? What does, what does the data say today about the church and, and about the hypocritical nature of the church? Is it true? Like when people say, oh, there's just hypocrites in the church. I don't want to be there. Is that a true statement? Or is that just something that unbelievers say? And this, so this, is, this was my curiosity. And part of my job uh, I'm, I'm a data analyst, so I, I love data. I love digging into data, compiling it, uh, you know, organizing it, letting it tell a story. And so I started looking around and, and found this study from Barna. Barna is a Christian organization or an organization that specializes in Christian research. And they did a study recently comparing the actions and attitudes of Jesus to the actions and attitudes of Pharisees. And so in, in the, what they did was they compiled a survey, okay? And the survey, they distributed to self-profit people who identified as Christians, who said they were Christians, they distributed the survey, and based on how they answered those questions would determine if these people aligned more in their attitudes and actions with Jesus or they aligned more in their attitude and actions with Pharisees. And so what I want to do is I want to show you the study. I want to show you the criteria that they used. This is the criteria that they used for actions like Jesus, actions like Pharisees, okay? So actions like Jesus. I listen to others and learn their story before telling them about my faith. Pharisees. I tell others the most important thing in my life is following God's rules. Jesus. In recent years, I have influenced multiple people to consider following Christ. Pharisees, I don't talk about my sins or struggles. That's between me and God. Jesus, I regularly choose to have meals with people with different faith morals from me. Pharisees, I try to avoid spending time with people who are openly engaged in sinful lifestyles. Jesus, I try to discover the needs of non-Christians rather than waiting for them to come to me. Pharisees, I like to point out those who do not have the right theology or doctrine. Jesus, I am personally spending time with non-believers to help them follow Jesus. Pharisees, I prefer to serve people who attend my church rather than those outside the church. Okay, so those are the criteria for actions. And then there is criteria for attitudes. Jesus, I see God-given value in every person regardless of their past or present condition. Pharisees, I find it hard to be friends with people who seem to constantly do the wrong things. Jesus, I believe God is for everyone. Pharisees, it's not my responsibility to help people who won't help themselves. 
Jesus. I see God working in people's lives even when they are not following him. Pharisees. I feel grateful to be a Christian when I see other people's failures and flaws. Jesus. It is more important to help people know God is for them than to make sure they know they are sinners. Pharisees. I believe we should stand against those who are opposed to Christian values. Jesus. I feel compassion for people who are not following God and doing immoral things. Pharisees, people who follow God's rules are better than those who do not. Now, you may not agree 100% with all of these, but this is the criteria they use. And you can get the idea here that these self-professing Christians take this survey and then they're categorized. And so here's the results of the study. What they found was that 51% of self-identified Christians in the U.S. in this study are characterized as having attitudes and actions that Barner researchers identified as pharisaical. On the other end of the spectrum, just 14% of self-identified Christians, just one out of every seven, actually represented the actions and attitudes that Barner researchers found to be consistent with those of Jesus. And then to add on to that, they had a secondary study that they did where 84% of young non-Christians say they know a Christian personally, yet only 15% say the lifestyles of those believers are noticeably different in a good way. This is only one study. But what's troubling to me is that this is not perception. This is not speculation. This is not just the opinion of an unbeliever. This is real. These are hard facts, concrete statements. So what can we conclude from this? Well, I think that we can conclude that in God's kingdom, the right actions do not matter if you have the wrong attitude. I mean, this is the story of the whole Old Testament, right? Prophets are constantly telling the people, Your rituals mean nothing without ethics. Jesus carries over to the New Testament. The New Testament, Jesus says, look, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Accepting the invitation, going back to the parable, accepting the invitation, showing up at the wedding feast, doesn't really matter if your attitude is, I'm never going to change my clothes. I'm not going to bend my will to the king's will. I'll show up, but I'm not going to change my attitude. I mean, for all we know, this guy maybe just showed up for the meal. Maybe he just wanted some good food. Maybe he was like some of the people that were fed by Jesus at the you know, feeding of the, of the 5,000, where they're like, man, this guy's great. He can keep our bellies full. Let's make him king. I mean... Look, Jesus said, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for the sake of me will save it. And I found myself, and again, I'm preaching to myself. Look, I can abstain from all these different things. I can can be a good person, not cuss, not drink, not lie, follow all the rules, have all the right outcomes. But that doesn't necessarily mean that my heart has been changed. And yes, just like this man stuck out at the wedding feast, people notice. People can notice. 
I really believe that this is a message that is relevant today and needs to be preached because clearly in some ways, and I'm not saying, this is between you and God, right? I'm not saying this church or you specifically, but clearly as the community, as the overall body of Christ, we have fallen short in some ways. Because the, demonst- the, the, the data demonstrates that as a whole, Christians have missed the mark with allowing the Spirit to transform our hearts and our lives and guide us. And if, if, if Barna has uncovered a, a, a piece of how Christianity is viewed in our society, then this is another, the next fill in the blank for you on the bulletin. We don't need more people who just believe the right things about God. We need a heart change. I, let me be the first to say I need a heart change. I need a heart change every day. It's a daily process. It's not a one-time decision. Oh, I'm good now. I got the club. You know, or, or I, I, I came to the invitation. I accepted the invitation. I'm good. I'm going to be there. No, it is a daily process. Not a one-time decision, not a one-time prayer. I need to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ every day. And look, the, the beauty of this parable is that God is for you. He's, his love is far-reaching. But he wants all of you. He wants all of me. I think all of us can agree, look, we don't just want to do the right things. We want to be different people. I want to be a different person. I want to be changed, transformed, renewed in my mind. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back for his bride. And we're living in the, the, that year of in-between where he's preparing a place and he's coming back What is he going to find when he comes back? What is he going to find with his bride, the church? Is he going to find her clothed in the garments that he provided? Or is he going to find her holding on to her old ways, her old thoughts, her old attitudes, old actions? I believe that if we commune with Jesus and know him and we allow him to know us, and we saturate ourselves in His Word, and we apply His Word, and allow the Holy Spirit to change us, the morality, and the good works, and all the outcomes, that, that all takes care of itself. We have to fellowship with Him. Allow Him to know us, and to know Him. The rest of that's going to take care of itself. I know that everyone here, myself included, look, we have actions and attitudes that need work. That's the beauty. Look, I said from the beginning, I'm preaching to myself. I know that I have a, a, a rotten attitude, rotten actions. I don't want to be that person anymore. But it's a process and it's a journey. Can't just snap my fingers and be a different person. I mean, God does that. God can do that. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I don't want to insult God's power and his providence. But a lot, of, a lot of this is a process, right? A lot of it is a process. And it's ongoing. And it takes time. And this is why Pastor John has been talking about the next steps. 
Because the next steps is a way where you can take that next step to a change to a different life and you can get accountability, you can get prayer, you can get into a life group, you can get into a discipleship group. This is the last fill in the blank. Your new wardrobe, it's found in the good news, but it's hemmed and it's tailored within the church. Jesus didn't say, take your Bible and go off on your own remote island and learn it. Just know it. If you know it, if you can answer all the questions, you're good. No. He created us to be in community in a body of believers so that we could all work together toward the same goal. Look, we all have attitudes and actions that need work. That's okay. Let's admit that. Let's join together. Let's read the word together. Let's apply it. Let's get accountability. Let's get scripture memorization. Let's do all these things together and move forward together and grow. That's what this is all about, taking that next step. Maybe you discovered today that you're a Pharisee in some way. I know that I did this week. <laughs> you can take a next step. These are at the end of, uh, end of the pews there. <clears throat> Excuse me, end of the pews there. Change happens in the presence of like-minded believers who are all committed to the same thing authentically. I find it interesting. This is the, I'm going to close with this. I find it so interesting. A friend pointed this out to me this week. He said, what's the posture that you use when you change garments, when you change clothes? What's the posture that you use? What does it look like? Looks like this. This is the same posture that is what? Represents humility, submission, willingness to seek God, to allow him to do what he's going to do. I'm not holding on, clinching. No, I'm open to what you're going to do, God. Remove, remove them. Get them off. I want your garments. I want your holiness. I want your righteousness. I want a changed life. But really what it comes down to is it's not just about the clothing on the outside. It's about clothing the heart. I want a new heart, God. I pray that that's your same desire today. Let's close with prayer. Jesus, I know that, that I have attitudes and actions that are not pleasing to you. I'm sure there are uh, people here who can say the same thing. But we know that you've told us in your word that you've given us everything that we need to live a holy and righteous life. You've given us everything that we need, and that includes the new garments. But those garments, God, were not meant to, as just a one-time thing. They're hemmed and tailored within, within the body, within the church that you created, that you said the gates of hell will not overcome the church. I pray, God, that we would lean into the changes that you want to make in our life, the changes that the Holy Spirit is maybe even speaking to us right now in this moment. I pray we would not leave here until, God, we, we do what you're asking of us. My prayer, God, is simply this, that we would hear what you're saying to us and that we would do something about it. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.
Have a great week.